Today, I'm so pleased to introduce a new guest to our podcast, Albert Kim, Assistant Professor of Statistical and Data Sciences at Smith College. Bert, there's so much more to you than that, though, so I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, Susan. Uh, thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, it's a real honor to be here with, uh, with a fellow Canadian. So about me, uh, I completed my PhD in statistics at the University of Washington in 2011. From there, I worked as a decision support engineering analyst in the AdWords division of Google. Uh, the term data scientist wasn't as prevalent then. I left the company in 2013 and had stints at Reed, Middlebury, and Amherst Colleges. And since fall 2018, I've been an assistant professor of statistical and data sciences at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, USA. Awesome. That's a lot of really amazing liberal arts schools you just listed. And our listeners out there can probably see the parallelism of Bert's and, and my post-PhD career paths. Yeah, well, maybe not so much uh, parallelism as maybe uh, inversion. Yes, so that's what we're here to talk about. In this episode of Data Bytes, we talk about two different journeys that collectively take us to Google and back. So when I first heard uh, episode 37, uh, the episode where you describe your recent job search, uh, it occurred to me uh, that, hey, we have identical post-PhD trajectories, but just in reverse. Yeah, but to be honest, you probably have a more well-rounded perspective than I do, having worked at all of these institutions, uh, which presumably differ somewhat in their cultures. Uh, most importantly, I think it can be extremely interesting to hear from you sort of what made you decide to go into academia after your stint in industry. That's a lot rarer than going from, uh, you know, academia into industry in the opposite direction. So listeners who've heard my story perhaps just aren't getting the full picture. Yeah, so I realized very early on in life that I enjoyed teaching. And uh, furthermore, when I was a grad student, I volunteered to take on more teaching and TAing responsibilities than was typical. When I left grad school, my plan was to work in industry for a few years and then switch to a more uh, teaching-focused academic position. So I went into industry knowing full well that I would eventually make a switch. Similarly, I enjoy teaching a lot while a grad student. Um, I feel like at Yale, though, we didn't have the same kind of opportunity that you might um, add a big program in, in the University of Washington. Um, we didn't have as many courses frankly. So teaching for us is pretty limited to holding office hours and grading, um, at least back in the day when I was a PhD student. So in contrast to research, you know, what I liked about teaching is that it has more of an instant gratification feel to it. When you tear apart a really complex concept and students appreciate it, you immediately feel like you won. That's different from academic research where the process takes a long time. And even when you think you're done with a project, there's no guarantee that your peer reviewers, say at the journal you're submitting to, agree with you. Uh, absolutely about the, uh, the instant gratification to uh, about teaching. Uh, this kind of e uh, echoes something that uh, Andrew Flowers, who uh, used to be a quantitative editor at 538, told me. He said that uh, when working at a news media outlet, like especially one like 538 based in New York City, it was often a very uh, exhilarating adrenaline rush as, you know, an exam, uh, an event would happen. He would quickly write it up, uh, put out the story and then boom, watch the, uh, the metric spike. 
He did say that uh, after a while, however, that he lamented not being able to uh, build something for the medium to long term, you know, to take uh, to take ideas and think them through. Uh, this was because the speed of the nude cycle wouldn't allow for this kind of work. So for that reason, he left 538 and took up a more researchy position as an economist at Indeed. Cool. You guys must have a lot in common. Um, I want to go back to your title at Google because decision support engineering analysts made me chuckle a little bit. I think this is one of those things in my previous industry years, I spent some time as a quantitative analyst, which I think is just what data scientists used to be called uh, in finance and tech. And then it became a lot more fashionable to brand your openings as data science openings. And even within Google, you can find some people with different titles, but effectively do the same job, just depending on when they joined the company and what the title had been at the time. Yeah, a decision support engineering analyst that doesn't really roll off the tongue easily. My direct manager somehow uh, got the title statistician, which, uh, which a lot of us were <laughs> jealous of. Uh, others on my team had quantitative analysts, uh, as you say, and frankly, it was, uh, it was a little puzzling. However, as I said earlier, this was at a time when the term data scientist just wasn't as prevalent. Yeah, the field has changed dramatically over the years. Um, okay, so switching gears a little bit, high on everybody's minds is probably what's your story, right? In your fourth or fifth year in your PhD program, I'm thinking back, um, what was running through your mind? Were you exclusively looking for industry jobs or did you apply to a mix of industry slash academic positions? Um, and in 2011, I'm, I'm wondering, that time that you completed your PhD, was that a good year for the job market that affect your choice somehow? Yeah, so midway through grad school, I could definitely feel myself flounder a little bit, and I felt I could benefit from a little more perspective. So I started contacting people in my network, you know, asking them what kind of work they did and how their educational background fit in. I knew Nick Shimandi from my time at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, and luckily my timing was right, and I managed to snag an internship in AdWords in early 2010, I believe. Oh, wow. Nick Shimandi, who is now head of data science at Lyft. Yep, yep. Uh, Nick was my uh, direct manager while at Google. Uh, I think he's since become the scientific director of mapping at Lyft. Okay. Uh, but anyways, uh, the internship went really well. So I got, uh, quote unquote, converted to a full-time position uh, upon completion of my PhD, which I completed about a year and a half later. So I didn't really apply for jobs or go on the market per se, as I had this one lined up before I graduated. That makes sense. I think sometimes it can be really stressful, right, in your final years of the PhD program to be focused on getting your dissertation out the door, but then also having to be on the hunt for a job. And so this, this is a perfect way of sort of having one less thing to juggle at that time. Um, yeah question for you. What was it like at Google in 2011? I feel like many of us now can't even remember a time when Google wasn't a big tech company, and it most certainly was in 2011, but it was just shocking to juxtapose our respective Google employee ID numbers. Like, I'm currently employee number 700,000 something, and you were... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, we joked about this previously. I think uh, my badge number was 97,000, I think. Oh, man. Uh, I, yeah, I know it was definitely a five-digit ID number, and uh, as opposed to the uh, six-digit ID numbers that they, seems to be, they seem to be handing out these days. 
Yeah, and this is not to say that Google currently has 700,000 employees um, because there's turnover, right? But evidently, the company has grown tremendously even between 2011 and now. So AdWords, we know this to be the ad selling platform of Google. I've used it myself once upon a time. So what was it like working there as the key revenue generator? It must have been a pretty critical division within the company. Absolutely. Uh, Google makes most of their money through ad revenue. In fact, I checked the other day and uh, uh, ads account for 84% of uh, Alphabet's revenue, uh, Alphabet being the parent company of Google, YouTube, and Waymo, the self-driving car division. So within AdWords, I was in ads quality. This was the team uh, in charge of determining which ads to show based on queries on Google.com. So for example, let's say you go on Google and you search for tennis shoes. Uh, ads quality will run a near instantaneous auction uh, to determine the placement of ads based on advertisers' bids. So for each ad, they would compute the product of uh, the bid per ad click times Google's prediction of how many people will click on the ad. That product is a forecast of how much revenue Google will make. So the winners of the auction would get better placement of their ads, like on the top and on the right-hand side of the search results page. Now, within the ads quality team, there were engineers who wrote production code to run the auction, but I was part of the ads metrics sub-team, and this was the team of analysts. So uh, to quote my team's leaders, uh, the role of ads metrics was to own the semantics and significance of all ads related signals and metrics. That sounds like a very clear objective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very catchy phrase. Well, succinct phrase, let's say. So on the ads metrics sub team, what was the um, what were the backgrounds of, of people who, who were your teammates there? Uh, the team had a very, very eclectic uh, mix of backgrounds, uh, including engineering, economics, psychology, uh, physics, mathematics, and and statistics. So it didn't really matter uh, what your explicit background was in, but rather whether or not you had a good sense for data. And then within this team, uh, there were projects, and I'll, uh, the most interesting one that I worked on was on uh, task classification. I can't go into too much detail about it, but uh, roughly speaking, based on a user's queries, we had to classify what kind of task they were trying to perform. So for example, uh, whether or not the user is shopping or whether or not the user is merely trying to navigate to a certain page. Uh, the idea being that if someone is not in shopping mode, if you will, it doesn't really make sense to show them ads because if you bombard them with ads when they're not shopping, they eventually start to, uh, to tune them out. And this was a phenomenon called uh, blindness. So it really only makes, use, uh, makes sense to show users ads when they're clearly primed for shopping. That's really interesting. And it's maybe counterintuitive sometimes to think that Google would actually suppress ads. I mean, ads are priced by the impression. So that does effectively reduce their revenues, right? Uh, but on the other hand, the success of Google as an ad platform really relies on being able to serve ads effectively. So to uphold that reputation, ads need to be shown only in a purposeful manner. So yeah, that's really neat. 
One question that a lot of people wonder about is, does my PhD actually help me with an industry position? And that, of course, differs from one role to another, even amongst jobs that are similarly titled data scientist or decision support engineering analyst. What would you say about that question for your role? Uh, This is a very common question I get. And in fact, this was a question that I had in my mind when I was, you know, working through my PhD. So while I can't speak for the uh, the industry as a whole, in my experience, I would say that yes, uh, all other things being equal, having a PhD over just say like a master's degree will definitely help. It will help uh, both in terms of technical knowledge, but also in terms of quantitative and computational maturity. But that being said, in ads metrics, at least the, the sub team I was part of, uh, there were some very capable individuals that only had master's degrees. However, these folks were uh, were very self-directed and were able to learn on the fly very quickly. Yeah, and I would say that in my experience, I think, you know, what counts the most, the experience that counts the most is really about the um, the breadth of data problems that you've encountered. And so for some people who have done very theoretical work as part of their PhD, a diverse set of problems might not have been part of that, right? You probably didn't get exposure to a lot of different um, applied data problems. But in contrast, someone who has a ton of industry experience but no advanced degree might do just fine. Um, You know, specifically in our group, we actually have two very closely related positions. They're called data scientists and product analysts. And product analysts tend to have way more industry experience, or, or maybe they have a master's degree. And I don't think the two roles differ by a whole lot in terms of responsibilities. I think I think we basically do the same thing. Uh, interesting product analysts. Uh, it seems that uh, things have shifted a bit from uh, in terms of titles and positions uh, from when I left. I do remember that when I left in 2013, that uh, you know teams like finance and HR and uh, even the actuarial team were just just starting to hire individuals with a, uh, a skill set similar to someone that we would now call a data scientist. And I think that this speaks to the uh, the ever-shifting landscape of the industry. So uh, who knows where we'll be at in six more years. Yeah, for sure. Um, and some of it is just the right modification of semantics to encourage <laughs> yeah. or discourage more applications. Um, I've heard that internally at Google that that's actually had some intended and unintended consequences as they shift <laughs> one, one title to another. So uh, 2013, you were at Google then for almost two years before you finally decided to switch gears. You'd mentioned that you always wanted to teach eventually. Did you plan on making that switch within two or three years? So my original plan was to teach for between five and seven years and then make the switch. However, I left Google just shy of two years. Uh, mostly for two reasons. Uh, First, I spoke to people who were teaching in liberal arts colleges, and they said that while they would value industry experience, uh, if I spent too much time away from academia, it might make me a less marketable candidate, uh, in particular with respect to research. The second reason is a little more personal. Uh, I I had a particularly difficult time in grad school, and by the time I finished, I was completely burnt out. And instead of taking some time for self-care and recovery, I started at Google immediately. Uh, In fact, for the first two months on the job, I would go to work during the day and then 
do revisions for my dissertation at night and on the weekends. So it was a rough way to start. So for this and other reasons, I definitely struggled at Google and was underperforming. But at the suggestion of my team manager, Amir Najmi, who I'm still very much in close contact with, uh, I took an unpaid leave of absence. So you can think of this as a uh, better late than never gap year of sorts. Uh, I'd saved enough money and I traveled a bit, exercised and explored San Francisco. Uh, I made terrible art and binged watched The Sopranos. And for the first time in my life, I could ask myself, okay, what do I want out of life? And it was during this leave that I saw a position at Reed College for a one-year teaching gig. So I applied and fortunately I got offered the position. And then at the end of the leave, uh, my choice had pretty much narrowed to a fork. It was either stay at Google and rather interestingly, switch to the YouTube team that you're currently on. <laughs> that was one option. Uh, and the other option was just to try out this one year position. So I realized that I could try out the teaching position maybe a little earlier than I planned. And if it didn't feel right, uh, I would have no problems finding another job in tech. So I said, let's try it out. I uh, packed up all my belongings into a U-Haul, drove up the California and Oregon coast, and uh, the rest is uh, history, so to speak. Wow, what a story. I think if you had switched to YouTube, we might be having a very different conversation now. <laughs> you know, a conversation where you could literally be my boss. <laughs> there are a lot of things I want to highlight here. So first of all, grad school is difficult. And, you know, I hear this from a lot of people. I feel it from myself as well. So I'm putting this out there just so anybody who is going through grad school and is having a difficult time, this is a sentiment that is echoed across the board. I, I had such a difficult time as well. Um, you know, quals were really hard and finding a dissertation topic is really hard. Doing the dissertation was really hard. Um, but, you know, in a sense, I always knew that I wouldn't be going down the tenure track path. So I optimized differently. So I didn't become overly concerned about publishing or finding research projects that would sustain many papers. Um, and I think that choice made me feel more at peace with where I was in my research. But of course, on the other hand, it definitely limited where I can go in an academic career. But you are living proof that even if you do have a difficult time in your PhD program, don't give up and don't let it deflate your hopes of becoming an academic if that's what you're interested in. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that graduate school is a very big commitment and people come into it from very different places. Struggling in grad school, uh, both in professional and mental terms, is not the exception, but rather the norm. And also, ultimately, at the end of the day, if grad school is not for you, then that is not a personal failure on your part. That is just a statement that, hey, I tried this and it's not for me and let's try something else. That's absolutely true. And the second thing I want to say is that we're just so blessed to be in a field that lets us be somewhat amphibious. Um, you talked about how you might be less marketable as an academic after too many years in industry, but it's really great that we do get to at least experience and have a taste for both worlds. And this is far more difficult for some other fields potentially. Absolutely. I think that it's important to remember that our experiences do not uh, generalize to everyone who's in grad school or, or in industry. I think that uh, being in a field where the demand for labor uh, exceeds supply definitely affords us a lot of options. 
Now, we know that promotions work very differently in industry and academia. In industry, you're valued based on the success of the projects you worked on, the impact that you've had on those projects, um, the effectiveness of communication or, or leadership if you're at a higher level. Um, and in academia, it's oftentimes the quality of the research that you've done as judged by your peers from other institutions. So first of all, did I paint the correct picture here um, in particular for you, right? Because I know liberal arts schools additionally value teaching and service a tad more than research universities. You're spot on, Susan. Uh, I'm not a, at a R1 research institution where research is the most important criteria for promotion, but rather I'm at a liberal arts institution where teaching is valued more than research. And at Google, it was definitely uh, project-based. Uh, in fact, the four criteria by which your work was judged on my team were the following. Uh, the scope of the project, the impact the project had, uh, the complexity of the work, and the amount of leadership that uh, you exhibited in performing or uh, doing the project. You got them memorized. <laughs> uh, uh, not quite. I had uh, written, down, written them down somewhere and managed to dig them up for this, uh, this interview. And uh, I do want to say also, uh, additionally, that these criteria were evaluated by or measured by peer reviews, where uh, peer reviews were given by individuals and individuals or peer reviews that you receive from individuals who are higher up in the company were weighted higher than from individuals who maybe weren't as high. Having observed a round of this kind of review at Google, but not having participated in it, um, given that I've only been there a couple of months, it's it's interesting because I didn't see this sort of formalized review process at my previous jobs. Um, it's it almost reminded me of something like a tenure review, in the yeah. sense that you know the peer review section, right, having that weigh in, and that's not just by your manager and and you know their manager, but it's also by people who who you've collaborated with in cross functional settings. So that to me was a bit surprising. Um, but given that very different promotion criteria, did you feel like your industry experience would somehow be undervalued in academia? How do you value your Google experience? In what ways does any of that support you in your current job at Smith? Um, my time in at Google and in Silicon Valley in general has uh, definitely informed my current position, uh, both in direct and indirect ways. And while there are definitely some uh, not so great aspects about Silicon Valley, uh, there were definitely some positive ones as well. So uh, in particular, my team encouraged us to have a very mindful relationship with our work. And this has greatly informed my professional outlook. And these are lessons that I try to impart on my students today. So what do you mean by mindful relationship? Uh, yes. Well, you know, that, that West Coast uh, kind of granola type thinking, but uh, it actually it actually did. Uh, it, it actually meant something. Uh, uh, for example, uh, my students in my machine learning class last semester constantly heard me stress the importance of getting a, uh, a minimally viable product out the door. So whatever project they're working on, get one a minimally viable product done quickly. Uh, this was a means to counter perfectionism and so-called analysis paralysis. Uh, in fact, my team equated perfectionism with a failure to launch. 
but other things like the importance of doing an exploratory data analysis before doing any model fitting, in particular, looking at the raw data values, because even data visualization and numerical summaries, uh, they put layers of abstraction between you and the data. And it is really important that you look at the data in its, at its most fundamental units. So my manager said this to me so much that I heard it in my sleep. And uh, I tried to make sure that my students had the same experience. This is really good advice for students at any level doing projects, I think. If you feel yourself getting stuck, look for a way to get unstuck, even if it means having to slightly modify the aims of your project a little bit. And sometimes I'd even pull out a notepad and just jot down all the different ways in which I didn't like my minimally viable product as I was working on it, just so that I can get out of my get that out of my system, right? Just to promise myself I'm gonna come back to it when I have time. But right now I just need to get somewhere, have something working to um, to not continually waste time brainstorming all the all the reasons why things weren't working. So I guess that's what it means when we talk about iterating in the tech world. Yeah, yeah. And along those same lines, Deirdre O'Brien on my team uh, taught me to not thrash or spin my wheels and knowing when to get help. Uh, I believe she came up with the rule of thumb to not spin your wheels for more than 20 minutes. At that point, it was important to stop, take a break, and then come back to it. And if you were still stuck at that point, uh, ask for help. Yeah, that's also helpful. And asking for help can sometimes feel like a sign of weakness, but by letting someone help you, you're giving them a chance to boost their confidence as well. Exactly, exactly. I, uh, my team did a very good job of normalizing the fact that people do struggle and that it was not a sign of weakness. And the way they put it was, is that, okay, well, if you spend 30 minutes struggling on a problem that somebody else knows the solution to and can fix for you in five minutes, I mean, yes, asking for help might be a disturbance, but in the end, the team saves 25 minutes. So if you're stuck, ask for help. But uh, also, I do want to bring up uh, one important, one more important thing that I learned while I was there, and it was the uh, the importance of owning up to mistakes. I remember in one particular case, a, uh, a very capable colleague of mine, uh, Michael Hoxter, made an error in a particularly important analysis. But I don't even remember the details of the error, but I remember more how he handled it. You know, I mean, at first he was, he was taken aback, but he didn't pout or, or, or get defensive. He went and fixed his error, owned up to it, and then made sure the, to stress the lessons that uh, we could all learn. And I, I never forgot that. Uh, Mike is now a director of data science at Stitch Fix. So I think despite his error, he's doing just fine. That was a superstar team that you were on, it seems like. Uh, I, it was a real privilege to work with, with, with these individuals. And I think that's probably the... I mean, uh, yourself well, included, though, in that. Well, yeah. well <laughs> I was a small fish in a big pond there. <laughs> But all this to say that uh, as analysts, the only thing we really have to offer is our credibility. And if you lose that, you're pretty much out of the job. So to maintain that credibility, to reiterate, you know, be careful with your calculations. But if you do make a mistake, being transparent and, and owning up to your mistakes can actually build trust with other people. OK, 
Absolutely. So finally, just to wrap things up, what advice would you give, Bert, to um, PhD students who are now at this crossroads that you were in back in 2011? How do you approach the job market here? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say that unless you're fairly certain you want to go straight into academia after your PhD, you will definitely benefit from uh, getting a different perspective in industry. Now, I'm not sure if that will come at a cost. For example, if a goal you have for yourself is to get a position at a R1 research institution, I'm not sure how that might affect that outcome, but it is definitely worth at least considering because I know I've benefited immensely from the different perspective I got in industry. And as for how to approach the market, well, I'm, I'm sure you've all heard this before, but it's, it's, it's about networking. So some advice I got that helped me out was send emails out that maybe aren't necessarily asking for a job, but uh, asking for inter informational interviews. People love to talk about themselves and you, maybe you can find somebody who's willing to take 15, 20, 30 minutes out of their day to, uh, to give them, uh, to give you their perspective. Uh, maybe go to meetup.com and find out about uh, local gatherings. And uh, oh, yeah, and in, in particular, uh, listen to episode 37 of Databyte. <laughs> I think that your description of the application and interview process uh, was very enlightening. Thanks for plugging that. <laughs> and you keep telling me that I had said the word process like that. I don't even recall saying it that way. I mean, maybe I do. It's just the residual Canadianness in me that sometimes bursts free. But I'm going to definitely be very self-conscious about how I pronounce the word now. It is definitely hard being a Canadian, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I... <laughs> Another announcement, we're going to be on hiatus for two weeks, so um, please don't forget about us. We're going to be back in two weeks with a fresh episode of Databytes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>